Good morning. Let's thank our kids one more time for leading us. Pointing us so well to the cross of Jesus. And uh, if you've got a Bible, we you turn with me to Romans 5. That's where we're going to spend most of our day today. Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11, and we will be in a couple other places. Uh, if you're at home, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to take communion as part of our worship today. So if you are at home, you may want to hit that pause button and grab some elements so that you're uh, prepared to take. Uh, and you can see the, the stage setting behind me tonight, just as a reminder, if you didn't catch this, our A-team, which is our part, the part of our body that is adults with special needs, is going to be putting on a performance uh, that's going to remind us of uh, what Christ did coming into Holy Week and how his death and resurrection have saved us. So I just encourage you to come back and buy tickets at the door for five bucks. So if you're free tonight, you're welcome. We'd love to have you. All right. So let's dive into God's Word. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. As I was thinking about this series, we've been talking about the power of the cross, and we've talked about the work, uh, the cross is the work of substitution and the work of a propitiation. And we, you know, I know those are big words, but hopefully we did an okay job of explaining them. But I was thinking about um, a trip that I took when I was thinking about the power of the cross. A couple years ago, I got to go visit some of our ministry partners in India. Uh, and while we were there, I was with Pastor Ian, so it was the two of us. And while we were there, uh, throughout the week, one of the things, I think we were there 10 days, and every day, our hosts so graciously would adjust the items that they made so they would eat one thing and they would give us something different than what they ate. And they would say, you know, this is your spice level. This is our spice level. Uh, you're going to eat this and, and we're going to eat that. So same thing, just cooked with a little less something in it, a little less kick in it. So, you know, right before we decide, Ian and I, we're going to get on a, a pretty long plane flight. So I don't know if this was the right choice at that moment. But the last day, we were going out for kind of our last meal together with all these really dearly loved pastors that we're partners with over there. We said, look, listen, stop giving us the kind of sissy plate. Give us what you're eating. To which our friend looked at us and said, I don't think you know what you're asking for. And we're like, no, no, come on. We're just, we want to eat what you're eating. And so he said, okay, if you're sure. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, like, how bad can it be, Right. I've never put anything that hot in my mouth before or since. It was so hot. I mean, it was another level of it. I grew up like really enjoying hot food, right? Like I enjoy, I grew up in Texas. Uh, we eat jalapenos. I remember like having a dare with a friend, like can you finish all the fresh jalapenos on your plate at this Mexican food restaurant? Which the difference between fresh jalapenos, like pickled jalapenos, they're much hotter, but they're not like habaneros, you know, they're not that hot. When we moved here, we went to Wegmans. And in the section at, that sells the jalapenos at Wegmans, it said, caution, very hot. And we thought, oh, sweet Pennsylvania. Sweet, sweet Pennsylvania. So, you know, we're used to a little heat, and it was brutal. Have you ever eaten something so hot? And here's the experience that I want you to, to remember in your minds. You put it in your mouth, and the, the heat just grows. You know what I'm talking about? Like it starts and you're like, oh, oh, that's hot. And then it finds another place in your mouth and it goes, oh no, even more. And then it hits the back of your throat and you're like, I'm gonna breathe fire. That's how this meal in India felt. Ian and I just kept looking at each other. We were sweating, like a flop sweat. And we were like, how long's the flight after this? And as I think about that, that's a little bit of a silly way to help you understand what we're trying to do in this series that as we reflect upon the power of the cross. You see, what I want you and what we're hoping will happen in this time as we prepare ourselves for Good Friday and Easter together is that we would understand and let the power of the cross grow 
in our hearts and in our minds. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm adding to the power of the cross. There's nothing that needs to be added. But what I hope you see is something far beyond what we sort of often say is that, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, which is an absolutely true statement. But we sometimes leave it there. And our hope is that in sort of understanding how he was our substitute, how he bore the wrath of God for us, and today, how he's reconciled us to the Father, that in looking at the cross, what we're doing is trying to let the power of the cross grow and take hold of our minds in increasing measure and, in take, and take hold of our hearts in increasing measure. Kind of the same way that heat grows when you eat something hot. We want the heat of the cross to grow in our hearts. Does that make sense? That's what we're hoping to experience and I hope you're helped by it. So today we're gonna to try and answer two questions. We're gonna see that the cross is not just a work of substitution and propitiation, but a work of reconciliation. And I wanna show you how those three things are connected. So first we wanna talk about, well, what does it mean when we talk about reconciliation? And then what does a reconciled life look like? What if you recognize that the cross of Jesus is so powerful that it can reconcile you to God the Father? What does that kind of life look like? And I just wanna offer you a few things. Now that's one of those, you recognize, as soon as I ask that question, we could just stay here all day talking about all the implications. So I'm just gonna give you a few, okay? So let's look at Romans 5 together, and then we'll ask that first question. What is reconciliation? So Romans chapter five, starting in verse eight, and here's what we find. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, there's that word, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, there's a few really key texts when you think about this doctrine of reconciliation, the idea that the cross has reconciled us to God uh, in the scriptures. One is this one. The probably kind of preeminent one is 2 Corinthians chapter five, uh, at the end of that chapter, verses 16 through 21. And we're gonna look briefly at that, but I chose this text because it helps bring together the last three weeks of what we've been looking at. So let's understand when we talk about reconciliation, what do we mean? When we talk about it just sort of in layman's terms, Reconciliation just means you are estranged from someone and you've now had a relationship with them restored. Does everybody agree with that? You've been estranged from them, something broke that relationship, something fractured it, and now you've been restored in relationships whether you're right with one another and you have reinstituted the, re the relationship. It's been restored, made whole, all right? Now, in theological terms, when we talk about reconciliation, what we're saying is that our sin and the sin of the human race being part of this thing called humanity being in rebellion against God, we've been separated from God. We've got this fracture in our relationship with him caused by our sin. And as a result, we need to be reconciled with him. And one of the things Jesus did at the cross was he enabled us to have a reconciled relationship with God the Father. So Jesus reconciled our relationship with the Father. Now that sounds very simple, but it's a really crucial understanding. Now let's ask the question, how does that work? Because you might if you're kind of processing all this, you might recognize, well, let's just think in human terms for a moment. If I have a broken relationship with you and then I owe something, I've done something, I've harmed you in some way, so I owe a debt to you. 
if a third party comes in and pays that debt, does something to make payment for what I've done wrong, you can certainly understand. We get how now that, that person to whom the debt has been paid no longer has, holds a penalty over me. That makes sense to us, yes? But we might then think, but that person's still not gonna trust me. That person doesn't feel restored in relationship to me because this third party did something to take care of the penalty doesn't make them go, well, now I'm gonna receive you back because they would still probably hold me at arm's length. Would you agree with that? So how is it that this third party, Jesus, in doing what he did on the cross, is able to not just make us legally right with God, but he's able to restore our relationship with God? How does that work? And it connects to what we've talked about the last two weeks. So if you remember, we've talked about that he was our substitution, which means that he took our place on the cross. It's a penalty we should have paid, and he paid it. And then in week two, we looked at what it was that he was our propitiation, which is a big word, a big way to say that he bore the wrath of God for us, that I should have borne, he bore it. That was the penalty that he took. So there was a penalty, That penalty was God's wrath being poured out on sin and sinners, and Jesus took that. Now, both of those things are sort of legal ideas. They're the idea that there is a courtroom and a just judge is going to pass judgment upon someone deserving of that judgment, but Christ intervenes in that courtroom scene and declares us legally righteous. He makes us right with God. He pays the debt and takes away our penalty. Everybody with me so far? Those are legal ideas. But what Paul's gonna do this week is he's gonna take us out of the courtroom and into the home, if you will. He's gonna take us out of the legal and into the relational. And he's gonna say, Christ did those legal things, right? So that he could invite you back into relationship with him. They made a way. He loves you so much that he desired not just to enable you to not have to bear penalty and punishment, but to bring you back to him in relationship. And if you stop at substitution and propitiation, if you stop at those legal ideas, you come up short of God's full heart in the cross because his heart in the cross is to know you deeply and intimately and bring you close to him for all eternity. So I wanna talk about what that reconciliation looks like, but first we gotta understand how it happens. So there's really a key piece. Let me read these verses to you. Let me show you how they build on one another, and then we'll see the answer to that question when we flip over to 2 Corinthians and see how is it that his death can actually make us reconciled to God the Father. So look again at verse eight and nine, and we're gonna see those first two things, right? So he says in verse eight, chapter five of Romans, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we talk about substitution, remember, we said that phrase, he died for us, means he died in our place. That's what the literal translation would be. He died in our place. So do we see substitution, yes? All right, so he took our place. Then what happens next? Verse nine. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's propitiation. Do we see that? So he was our substitute. Then he bore the wrath of God for us, right? So that we've got those two. Now, if he stopped there, what he'd be saying is Christ did a legal work so that you could enter into eternity, but it wouldn't be relational in nature. It would just be this, okay, you no longer have to bear a punishment because it's been taken for you. But look where he goes next. 
in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were, what's the word, church? Reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So here's what I want you to see. He has done not just a legal work, but a relational work. And we've got to let the cross go fully all the way there. Not stop at the first or the second, but go all the way to the third. Do you see the connection that he's making in verse eight and nine? He did a work of substitution. He did a work of wrath bearing so that he could do a work of reconciliation. The first two lead to the third. That's what you need to see. Which tells us that our ambition in life is much more than just being justified by the blood of Christ. It's knowing God through the blood of Christ. It's to know him closely in fellowship with him. That's why we're gonna talk about what that looks like. But now, if you if you're kind of wanna flip around in your Bible, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter five. We're gonna put the words on the screen as well, but you can kind of keep a finger in Romans because we're gonna go back there. 2 Corinthians chapter five says this. We're gonna look at verse 19 and 21, okay? Just those two verses. So in 2 Corinthians five, he's talking about how God has done this reconciling work. And he says in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, right? So what he's just said there is God through Christ's cross did not count the sins of people against them. Well, how was he able to do that? And the answer is in 21. So 20, he's gonna elaborate a little bit more, but I wanna say focus. So go to 21, and he's gonna answer that question, how he was able to not count our sins against us. In verse 21, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, listen, we talked about this verse when we talked about substitution. Here's what I want you to understand. The reason that the death of Christ can reconcile these two other parties, me, you, and the Father, the reason that works that way is because it wasn't just a legal work of penalty taking, it was a work of transformation, so much so that he took his righteousness and put it on us. And he took our guilt and sin and put it on himself. And in doing so, he removed the thing that caused the relational fracture between us and God so that the thing keeping me from being in close fellowship with God, the thing that ruptured my relationship with him, it's gone. So much so that Psalm 103 can say, as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? As far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you you see that? What he's saying is he doesn't remember your sins anymore. Not because he's like, oh, I just forgot them, but because they're so covered by the work of Jesus. You are so clothed in his righteousness. He has so taken your guilt and sin upon himself, yet without becoming sinful somehow in his miraculous power, He has so taken it that Christ, that God the Father, no longer sees between you and him the thing that fractured your relationship. That's so hard to comprehend because you and I, have you ever had a ruptured relationship? Or better yet, better yet, you've had two people in your life that have a fractured relationship. 
and you've tried to talk to them about reconciling with one another. And it seems like no matter what you say, it will not move their hearts. You been there? And you saying, come on, don't you see? Come on, no, really. Like, and, and you just beg and you cajole and you try to reason with and, you, and it, nothing works because the heart that has been wounded and hurt by someone does not easily reconcile. It does not forget those things. It does not so easily say, I'll have restored trust. And we were in utter rebellion against God, in hatred of him. And through the power of the cross, Christ has so brought forgetfulness of sins to the Father that he now turns upon us with love and affection and intimacy and joy when he looks at us rather than seeing us as the utter rebels that we were. The power of the cross goes far beyond legal righteousness. It covers you so that you might have a relationship with the Father, reconciled to him. Does that make sense? So we're building the power. We're helping grow in understanding it. Now, so that's how that works. That's how that righteousness comes about. So let me just ask this question before we move on to the second question, which is what does a reconciled life look like? If substitution and wrath-bearing lead to reconciliation, and that's what he's been building towards, are you living your life like what the cross did was restore intimacy with God? Are you living like closeness to him was granted to you at a very great cost? Or does he sit over on the side of life? Does he kind of stay over here? When you think about him, do you think indifferent thoughts? Or do you think thoughts of love and peace and hope? Do you enjoy him? Which is what we're gonna see in a moment as an indicator of a reconciled life. So let, let's go to that second question. What does a reconciled life look like? So the first thing, again, go back to Romans now if you're kind of flipping around. I told you to keep a finger over there. And we're just gonna look in verses 10 and 11 now. And we're gonna see that the first thing a reconciled, looks like, reconciled life looks like is it looks like investing in a forever friendship. Investing in a friendship that will last forever. So look at verse 10. There's a bit of an interesting thing that happens here, okay? He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So here's what's happening there. There's a, um, there's in verse nine, he's just said, because he bore the wrath of God, we're reconciled. So one results in the other. You follow me so far? He bore the wrath, we are reconciled. Then he goes, because we are reconciled, and we live that way through all of life, he says, much more when we come to the end of life and we go to the Father or the Son returns, whichever one happens first. And Jesus begins to bring judgment on the earth. So let's just imagine we're alive when Jesus returns. He says, whether it's the end of life or it's Jesus returning, and he brings judgment upon sin, I am confident because I've lived in this reconciled state now because he bore the wrath of God, that when I come to the end, that will not get reversed. 
that because he died and rose through his life, it says, I am not fearful that one day I will face his wrath. So he started with wrath, he went to reconciliation, and he returned to wrath and said, when you live in this reconciled way to God, here's what you're absolutely certain of. Your friendship with him, your reconciled relationship, is never going to be undone. You're not, it's not gonna end. You're not gonna show up at the gates of heaven. You're not gonna show up in the presence of the Father and him go, I've decided to go ahead and bring wrath upon you anyway. You maybe had it for a little while and, and then now you're not gonna have it. So what he's saying here is he's giving them confidence. Your relationship with God, your friendship to God, your reconciled friendship is going to last forever through all eternity. It's unlike any other relationship in your life. So just think about what that means. We've all had, I hope we have, you have friendships that last for a season in life, right? You've had friendships that are like, when I was in college, they were my friend, but then we kind of gradually moved off, went different ways, and you know, it's okay. We, we just weren't as connected anymore. We have other relationships that are lifetime relationships. I hope you have some relationships, and there's probably not many. I don't know that there's intended to be many. Maybe it's three or four, right? Where you say, you just sort of know, this one's for life. We're gonna be friends for the rest of our lives. We are gonna be connected. Wherever God takes us, however far apart we end up, we are going to stay connected. And when God brings those kind of relationships, you treat them differently than the relationships that are for a season, don't you? The relationships that are for a season are wonderful, it's good, but you don't need to feel guilty when life circumstances take you in different directions and you lose contact because those relationships were there and they served a great purpose, but they were probably more seasonal. Some relationships are lifers. And those are the ones, those are the ones that you, you treat them differently. That's what I want you to see. What he's saying here to them is this is not just a lifetime relationship. This is forever. Your reconciled state with God means you will be close with him forever. Now, let me take a quick little aside here and say, and, and talk to my guys for a moment, because we don't naturally build these kinds of relationships. I watch a lot of guys get into their 80s and they have very few guy friendships left in their lives because it takes intentionality and it's hard for us. Now, ladies, I know you may not understand that, but it is hard for us to invest that way in one another, but I'm begging you to do it. I'm telling you, you need men in your lives. You need to invest intentionally you need to have a few guys that are going to be there all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And that takes a lot more than just talking about the game or our latest hobby or whatever it is that we relate around. We've got to go deeper with one another and not be content to stay here on the surface. Now that said, always remember this. I think it's very true. Ladies, you tend to connect face to face. You don't need anything between you other than a cup of coffee to have a great conversation and go deep with one another. Guys, we connect shoulder to shoulder. We tend to do better if we have something else to do together. But when we do, don't just do the thing together. Find out about one another's families. Find out about what has caused that other person to follow Christ and to choose to love him and to walk with him. Find out about them. Know them deeply. Find out what makes them tick, all right? Maybe I'll put up on our website a list of questions guys can ask each other. We're like the worst question askers. 
right? But here's the good news. If you become a guy who's a great question asker, all right, all of a sudden, relationships start building. Relationships start building, all right? All right, soapbox over. I'm gonna move over here. We're off that now. So the first thing we see about a reconciled life is that it treats your relationship with God like I'm reconciled forever. I'm gonna be with him in eternity forever. Now, here's the second part, okay? One word, one word in this text gives us our next two points. This is how rich the scriptures are. They can take one word and build off this thing and we need to see it. So the next thing that we see that a reconciled life looks like is deep joy and enjoyment. Deep joy and enjoyment. Look at verse 11. He says this. So he said, if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what he's saying there is the reconciliation is the ground, the reason for the rejoicing, all right? So what does that word mean? That word rejoice means two things. The first, it means to enjoy and express that enjoyment, to take joy in. So when he says, because we've been reconciled, we rejoice in God, the first thing he's saying is, you can actually enjoy who God is. Now you might think, well, why is that a big deal? I think I've always enjoyed things about God. You're actually wrong. You didn't. You hated who God was before you were in Christ. Do you know what Colossians chapter 1, verse 21? Is it 21? Yeah, 21. Colossians 1, 21 says, we were alienated and hostile in mind towards God before Christ. So yeah, you may have enjoyed certain parts of him that seemed beneficial to you before you were in Christ. You might have been like, I, I kind of like this about God. I, kinda, I think I kind of like that about God. But at the end of the day, our thoughts towards God were hostile because we wanted his position, because we wanted to be in charge of us and maybe more than us. <clears throat> and until we came to Christ and he won us, our minds, when they thought about who God was, did not love what they thought about, did not treasure what he was. But in Christ, having been reconciled to him, do you see what he's saying? We now, having been reconciled, rejoice in God. We now have a relationship with someone that we actually enjoy and take joy in and can express our enjoyment of. You know that when you enjoy something, the enjoyment never stops with just the enjoyment. You always have to what? Express the enjoyment. And you know this intuitively, because when's the last time you ate something great and just sat there and said nothing? Some of you will make weird noises when you enjoy something. Mmm, you know, whatever. And you're just like, well, that's strange. But enjoyment just comes out. It's what it does. It just, it just gets out of you because you're like, and everyone around you knows it. They're like, oh yeah, they really like that. And that's what he's saying. We rejoice in God because we've been reconciled to him. Do you get that it's a supernatural thing? That today, when you go home, whatever you're gonna do this afternoon, right? You're gonna watch the women's championship game. You're gonna mow the grass. You're gonna go throw the ball with your kids. Whatever you're gonna do. Whatever you're doing, if you find yourself in the midst of whatever that task is going, man, I'm so thankful that God reconciled me. What a, what a patient God he is. 
What a loving God. What a wise God he is. Anytime you have a thought about God that you find, I enjoy that about him, that's a supernatural thing that you enjoy that. It's supernatural that you are not hostile towards him in mind, but that you are enjoying him. You didn't choose to start enjoying him. You were hostile and he brought enjoyment of himself to you. That's a miracle. And we, I think we discount it because we think we're pretty good. And we think, well, of course I enjoy these things about God. No, 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 no. We were alienated, we were hostile in mind, and he caused us to rejoice in him. So that's the first thing, is that our relationship looks like joy and enjoyment. So the question for us there is, man, pay attention to what comes into your heart when you think about God. What are the feelings you feel? What are the thoughts you think? And as you do, recognize that those things that are enjoyment of God are supernatural gifts. Now, the second meaning of that word, rejoice in God, is our next point. And it's this. A reconciled life looks like having a stable purpose and value. A stable purpose and value. Now, here's what I mean by that. When we, he says, we now rejoice in God because we've been reconciled to him, that word can also be translated, and the original hearers would have understood both of these meanings, can, can be uh, translated glory in. We glory in God the Father. And what glory in means is not to glorify, right? That's part of, that's the rejoice in part, but it also means to find your own glory in the thing that you are rejoicing in. To find your own sense of worth, to find your own sense of value. So what he's saying is, you have a stable source of identity. Identity is a word that gets batted around all the time. Let me just tell you what identity is. Identity is where you get your sense of value and where you get your sense of purpose. That's what it is. It's where you get your sense of value, what gives me value, what makes me valuable, and where you get your sense of purpose. What am I made to do? What's my, what's my work in this life? What is it you've made me for, right? That's, that's what identity is, essentially. Value and purpose. So when he says we glory in God because we've been reconciled to him, what he's saying is you now have a stable resource, a stable source of establishing an identity in this life, one that doesn't move and doesn't change because here's what happens. God says you have value because I say you have value. I call you valuable, therefore you have value. Now try getting that kind of, and that's never gonna change because God does not change. His attitude towards you because of the cross, because you're reconciled, will not change, right? And that being the case then, now my value does not rise and fall with how well I do at work, with how well my kids do, with how obedient they are, with whether they succeed in life. My value doesn't rise and fall with my grades. It doesn't rise and fall with anything related to my performance. My value is now in a stable source. The other thing that happens is my purpose is certain, because it's not one that goes over here and then goes over there and goes over here. God establishes my purpose. And in him, now, I'm able to, to go from there into the purpose he has for me. Now, here's what that should lead to. That should lead to some amazing risk-taking. So here's my question. If you've been reconciled to God, you now have an immovable identity. How often do you take risks? If your value can't change, and your purpose cannot be thwarted, why would you be afraid? 
any failure is not going to keep God from accomplishing his purpose through your life. It's not. Any failure will not stop God from accomplishing his purpose in your life. Any failure does not diminish your value because he says you're valuable. And it wasn't based upon how well you performed in that risk that you took. So here's the risks that you can take. Let's just think about a few. You can take the risk of actually sharing the gospel with somebody, opening your mouth and declaring the hope of Jesus. Maybe think about it this way. Enjoy him and talk about what you enjoy. You can take the risk of going deeper in a friendship like we talked about earlier. You can take the risk of trying to create a company culture that is radically God-honoring. You can take the risk of adopting a child. You can take the risk of asking that, that woman out that you're afraid she's gonna say no because if she says no, you're still okay. You can take risks when you know that you have a stable identity. You can risk asking for forgiveness from your spouse when you need it because it doesn't lessen you and put them over you. It only strengthens you in who God says you are when you seek forgiveness when you need it. Does this make sense, yes? We have a stable value and purpose. So we're gonna come to the table now. The last thing, I mean, we could just keep going and going, friends. I, I wanna stop there because you know, a wise man once said, no one to stop. But listen, we could talk about how we are reconciled to one another in Ephesians chapter two through the reconciling work of the cross. We could dive deeper into 2 Corinthians chapter five and understand that as we leave this place, we leave here as ministers of reconciliation because it is the necessary result, the necessary result of being reconciled that we become now what Paul says is ministers of reconciliation who want others to be reconciled to God and pursue that. So servers, if you'd come, we're gonna come to the table of the Lord now. And it's fitting that we, in thinking about the power of the cross, now come to this ordinance of remembrance where we remember the work of the cross and reflect upon it. And so two things always for us, church, and we say them over and over because we need the repetition and reminder. The first is that as we come to the table, we never come lightly we don't come in a lighthearted way, but the scriptures invite us, in fact, command us to examine ourselves, which is to say, as we hold the elements, we say to the Lord, if there's any sinful way in me, help me to see it so that I might yield to you and walk with you as we put it to death. We don't wanna walk in that way any longer. I don't want to partake of the elements that represent the death of Christ and act as if I'm gonna go on living in any other way than ways that honor him and bring him glory. So we reflect and we take with sobriety these elements. The other thing we always remind ourselves of is if you're with us, friend, and you are not a follower of Jesus, you've not yielded your life to him, placed your faith in him, I just invite you to let these elements pass because as we take them, we are really proclaiming something with our actions, right? We know our actions matter, not just our words. And so we're proclaiming in the taking of the elements, we believe. We have yielded everything to him. We have placed the, all the trust for our salvation upon him. And if that is not a decision you've come to yet, we pray today that you would see that he's extending salvation to you in Christ. And until that day comes where you yield to that and receive it, we'll invite you to let these elements pass so that you wouldn't say with your actions something you have not believed in your heart and in your mind and confessed with your words. 
So we'll let those elements pass today. Servers, why don't you come? We'll take together here in just a moment.